Um, I'm Olivia Harrison. We just won a Grammy for the best uh, limited edition package. It's always bittersweet when George is recognized, but it's all it's it's wonderful and it's um, you know it's always emotional. But really, this last this last project, uh, because it was locked down and we were at home, and we had our bubble, that we put it together, really at home, and. So every, you know, we had time, every little detail, all the textures. Danny, Danny really drove the project. Uh, it was his idea. You know, I thought it was um, ambitious. And uh, so, you know, I had a role and I curated the book. Danny was really supervising all the elements. We had a great art director and, you know, it was recognized. And that's, that's really nice, nice to be recognized. Oh, well, congratulations. Welcome to this week's When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. Well, we, we got a bunch of little things that came in the news, so we're going to do a kind of bits and pieces show here for you all this week. Sort of a Dave Clark Five thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. First off, well, we heard that Julian Lennon's coming out with a new album. He's releasing a single on his birthday here next week. Yeah, continuing to record. Ahead of the LP's release later this year, the Grammy-nominated artists will release the singles Every Little Moment and Freedom on April 8th. We haven't heard anything from him in, oh, coming up close to a decade since the last time we, we had a, an album from Julian. But he, he's also been kind of concentrating on White Feather and all that stuff, I think. He's been writing children's books, and he's also been doing photography shows. He's done a lot of bits and pieces on other people's albums. He's guested on three or four things, some of which I've actually liked a lot. He and Steven Tyler are apparently big buddies these days. <laughs> I'd like to be a fly on the wall for that. <laughs> the one thing about this record, the title of this album is Jude. You know, uh, <laughs> I sit here and I think about Julian, and Julian, well, I guess much like his dad... <laughs> goes back and forth on his relationship with the Beatles and the Beatles legacy. Sometimes he just says, I'm not part of the family. They don't want me there. They don't invite me to things. So screw it. And then other times, yeah, sure. My dad was John Lennon. Isn't that great? I sort of 
see that as the ebb and flow of relationships in a family. Sometimes things are good and sometimes they're kind of rocky and you get kind of moody. And, you know, one thing we certainly learned from John Lennon was that you might read a quote, but he might not believe it three years later. Julian is John's son, but I mean, you know, you look at any of the rest of the Beatle kids, well, they'll have their ups and downs. You know, you look at Sean, but ultimately they don't ever seem to go as far as Julian does. Well, nobody really has that experience, really. I mean, this is know. true. Yeah, you know I mean, as we were talking about last week in in London Naked, you know, he he did go through the Lennon experience a decade later. Right. I mean, he did have an impact on of the Beatles' work when you consider, you know, Lucy in the Sky and Paul's song, which from the time everyone knew that it was kind of written for, for Julian, and so you know, he's more in that. Beatles story than the the other children are. He said, with great respect for the overwhelming significance of the song written for me, the title Jude conveys the very real journey of my life that these tracks represent. Heather McCartney has had less reflection on the Beatle world by her own choice. Right. Heather is Julian's age, and she was in the movie. And Julian wasn't. <laughs> right. Although we do, we do see Julian quite a bit in the Imagine film. Yeah. Well, at that point, I think it was all about child custody and getting to see your kids on the weekend, as it were. So he saw Julian more, probably more than he did at home. <laughs> I would guess that is the case. I certainly am looking forward to it. I, I always like new music from Julian. I don't know that I'm going to really love the album. It's hard to say about something you haven't heard yet. Is it of the same style? Is he... Yeah, You're sure. Done. I mean, by, of what he's released to date. Right. So do you want Julian to make Beatle music? I actually don't. I wouldn't mind if he went a little bit more in the, the later Beatles direction. Volat was kind of too much of a ripoff in retrospect. Uh, yeah, but, you know. <laughs> the producer, Phil Ramone, just said, you can do that. And it makes you sound like your dad when we put the echo on it. Let's just play that as much as we possibly can. And so, okay, and that's what they did. In reflection of that, he didn't want to be a teeny bopper idol anymore. He kind of went the other way with the latter albums of the first part of his career. You know, Help Yourself, those sorts of records, he kind of intentionally went away from either the Lennon sound or the Beatles sound. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know that much about what drove him to this. I mean, was there an expectation that the son of John Lennon would therefore go into the music business? Is writing songs what he does, or is it kind of an expectation? And that would reflect on, you know, how he approaches making albums in general. Phil Ramone, certainly, he was Billy Joel's producer and probably guided him a certain direction. He was relatively young and would be prone to follow the direction given him, but I don't know how much it really reflected who he was. Yeah, I think his own personal tastes tend to go a little bit more toward New Wave, a little bit more toward 80s-era Bowie. Yeah, Again, we're, we're all just picking at the pieces that we have available to us. Uh, the one thing I will say, the, that song, I Don't Want to Know, the song and the video were kind of 
we don't need you to do this, Julian. He just went all out on the Beatles thing for that. And it's like. Right. It's hard to know really what was going on because if you have a recording contract, your label wants you to make money. They're not there to just kind of let you express yourself. And so who knows what pressure was put on him to, to be more like his dad. That's what's going to sell. If you're more like your father, you'll sell more, more records. Well, and the last album, there was not a record company behind it. He paid for recording it by himself. Right. He did with this one. So we'll see what we get. Like I say, I'm sure I'll like some of it and I may not like some of it, but it's what Julian wants to do. And that's great. Yeah. And call it Jude. <laughs> that, yeah, I don't know whether that's necessarily the best title, but hey, it's his album and he can do what he wants to do with it. And it's his name. I mean, you know, it's if the song was written for him and everybody knows it is, and so Jude, uh, I'll give it to him. <laughs> okay. You're more behind the title of the album than I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm not against it. I just find it a little bit exploitative. You know, for a record that, let's face it, it has a limited audience. If it sells as well as it possibly can, it'll, you know, be moderately popular. And it may gain a following on YouTube and, you know, he, he may have a minor hit that way. But that's about as much as he's going to get. He's going to get a number one like Ringo's going to get another number one. <laughs> well, I do believe if you have a song that deserves to be number one, it usually gets there. I don't know. You know, so many good songs just never get heard especially when you don't have the backing of one of the major labels. Well, I think it's, the labels are less uh, influential than they used to be. So, you know, who knows? If, if he puts a song out there and, and he's got the platforms to put it out and it gains traction, then he's not going to need a label. Well, perhaps so. I actually fell in love with acting in school. And I was offered a, a scholarship to the uh, Shakespeare uh, company, uh, oh. you know, um, but I, I picked up a guitar. And, and the uh, rest uh, is history. Uh, That's the first of our topics here. Second, you know, welcome to everybody who are listening to this podcast for the first time. Last weekend, the, at the time we're recording this, as a matter of fact, the 2022 New York City Fest is just now wrapping up. We hope you had fun. Uh, we know that Mark Lewison was there and uh, our good friend Kid O'Toole made an appearance. Right. We certainly know about the history of the fest. I think Mark is kind of having an issue with finding new and interesting guests. You're not talking about Mark Lewison, though. I'm talking about Mark Lapidos. Right. right. I just kind of want to make that clear. The Beatle Fest slash Fest for Beatles fans guy. The guy. Mark Lewison has... Nothing to do with the fest other than he shows up because, well, he gets a check from Mark Lapidos. I have to question, why isn't he writing on the book? What is he doing there at the festival? He should be at a home writing. Well, he can't write 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? I am waiting. <laughs> I am waiting. Oh, my gosh. I think he's actually probably getting reasonably close with the draft, if I had to guess. Okay, well, I'll hang on for a while. Just It may be through to the editing stage. Right. We still don't know whether it'll be like one volume or two volumes like this. It'll certainly be two volumes. There's no way that it's going to be just one big book. And there is almost certainly going to be an author's edition, although we haven't been told that to any great extent. 
Right. We know that he has much more material for this set through 66 than he did for the first set. So, Oh, no doubt. Yeah, there's lots of stuff to talk about. <laughs> there's no way it's going to be any shorter than TuneIn was. Well, that's good. And that may well be what he's wrangling with the publishers over is, where will you be happy and we will be happy in the size of both the conventional edition and the author's edition of this book? Because there's probably just too many pages and too many words. <laughs> that sounds like Amadeus. There's just too many, <laughs> too many notes. Yeah. <laughs> Mark has chosen the exact amount of words that were necessary to tell the story, which is why he needed a second volume. <laughs> and a third volume after that. Right. And quite possibly even a fourth volume, he tells us. Volume three will take us to 1970, but he has said that he's really thinking about taking the story up to the actual signing at Disney World. The end. So there'll be a fourth volume, which basically goes from Get Back through to then. Right. Well, let's see. That should take us up to 2040. (laughs) (laughs) Mark is roughly your age. So let's hope he manages to get it done. Although he also says that he's pretty much done with the research for both volumes two and three. Right. So it's it's just straight writing from this point. He's not going to be going out and doing additional interviews and uh, unless something just tremendously new drops in his lap i mean of course he's probably gonna have to revise to a certain extent based on what's in the mal evans diaries hmm i wonder if if park is talking to certain people about those diaries if and when the estate allows ken womack to spread some access that mark lewiston is amongst the first to see them although he did apparently get access to the what the 64 and the 65 diaries, although he couldn't actually photocopy or take pictures on his iPhone, he's aware of the contents of those diaries. Right. Because they did actually sh- show them to him. I think, I believe Ken Womack even told us that. Well, that way he won't get stuff wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or leave out um, some major thing. Hey, Lawrence Tuba here. Looking forward to seeing you at the Fest for Beetle fans in New Jersey. It'll be fab. I have to admit, I haven't been to a fest in some time. Um, Neither have I. I. The last one I went to was in the last L.A. Fest. I I go further back. I think the last one I went to, I talked to Harry Nilsson. It's been a while. I am considering going to the Chicago Fest this year. Just because that seems a good one to go to. And, you know, a lot of our people are going to be there. And they have great pizza. So Kit's based out of Chicago and a number of other you know podcast types are there. And I know that I could get a couple of panels just for funds. Looks like a vacation. We'll see. Come August. If I have any money left after the McCartney show <laughs> in May. Right. You know, I guess what they should really do is they should lean harder into the crowd sorts of things. You know, for 10 years, for 20, for 30 years now, we haven't needed the film rooms in the fest. Although that's still kind of a big feature. You know, it's nice to watch the videos and and the movies and everything else with people who are like-minded. But I think kind of the attraction of that is going to go away. I would be interested to see how many people went to those sorts of events this time around. You know, with COVID and everything else, uh, are they trying to limit their ballroom time? 
Yeah. You know, some of the things kind of need to be revamped at the fest, and I guess we'll see. And this is what? This is the first time in three years? Three years, yeah. They skipped both Chicago and New York last year, and they skipped both in 2020. So the last fest was Chicago 2019. Well, again, I hope everybody had fun. I'm glad that it's still going on. Yeah, and it's kind of an amazing thing that so many years after this band broke up, people are still coming to an event to celebrate that band. You know, it's kind of amazing. And talk about stuff and buy and sell stuff and, and all the ups and downs through the years, including the, uh, although bootlegs were never allowed on the showroom floor, you know, there's always been that special room upstairs. Shh. That's always been a big attraction of the fest. Right. Gosh, I, I remember going through piles of Polaroids and pictures, you know, now you find them online everywhere. Yeah, I, you, you would have thought the, the internet, if not quite a death knell, would have hurt the fest much more than it has. Right. Their attendance goes up and, and it goes down, but it's always enough to keep Mark profitable and to keep Mark doing it. Now, I mean, of course, he doesn't do nearly as many shows as he once did, and he, the experience is now limited to New York and Chicago, but still... Twice annually is, is nothing to sneeze at. No, not at all. And you still get cool things, you know, all things Beatle. We'll show up there, yep. Although the counterfeits do also show up there. They do. But, you know, if you're looking for uh, an Apple copy of something, you might be able to find it there. And even the counterfeits, people go out and collect the counterfeits these days, or, <laughs> or they'll buy a nice-looking counterfeit just to fill a hole until they can find a real one. Right. <laughs> this is true. I want an ad back introducing, but I can't find one for less than $10,000. Oh, here's a counterfeit for you know 500 bucks. Sure. <laughs> it looks close enough. I can fill that hole in my collection until I can find a nice one reasonably priced. Right. Can you still find Beetle Monthlies there? They're great resource material you'll find th stuff in there that's like oh that's kind of interesting you know they need to go out and just reprint the whole thing in a book or a series of books yeah let's see the, the third thing we want to talk about this evening uh george harrison just won a grammy for the all things must pass box set primarily for the little statuettes that come with them the gnomes certainly helped him a lot yeah. um McCartney was up for two, and he didn't win either of them, but, you know, that's all right. Paul's won pl plenty of Grammys. Yeah. He probably wasn't sitting in the audience waiting for, for that, was he? I wasn't watching. I just got the notice here. The winner. From Best Boxed or Special Limited Edition Package. I was astounded gas that they would give out a Grammy for a box set. Most of the recent Grammys Paul's won has been for the reissues in this same category. He's won three or four of them in recent years, and and they've all been for the archive editions. That's an interesting concept in itself. I don't know how much the artist is actually involved in designing their box set. You know, I'm sure there's approval. During lockdown, we put it together in our little cottage industry at home. We did a book that that even contained a 150 year old oak tree that we cut bits of wood out to use in the cover of it. And, you know, so we, we paid attention to every detail. Just love, really. Love. Love and respect. Paul is reasonably heavily involved, or so they say. Well, that's cool. You know, 
there's the picture of him helping Richard Hamilton design the the poster that came with the White Album. <laughs> That's hands on. Yeah, probably not that hands-on, but it goes a little bit beyond approval. He hangs out, and he actually says, well, well, I'd like this, and, you know, well, this might be good for this page. And and then from the beginning, he once they get the text in, he, he thinks about the layout. So he deserves his Grammy. Yeah, I, I would say so. Now, the Beatles themselves, as a group, during the time they were a group, only ever actually won four Grammys. Y- yeah. <laughs> kind of funny that that's the case 65 they won best new artist which was for 1964 so then then the same year they won best performance by a vocal group for hard day's night and then they won two for pepper uh album of the year and best contemporary album didn't jeff emmerich also won that grammy he's the guy generally acknowledged for bringing recording engineering into the modern era he won grammys for sergeant pepper abbey road and band on the run and he also was the recipient of the Technical Grammy Award. Something to take note of, you know, the, the Grammys, uh, great. I'm glad George won. I'm glad Paul's won in recent years. But the Grammys have probably not been hugely kind to the Beatles, despite them uh, now being amongst their favorites and doing a, a special for them. In- the Beatles, the night that changed America, a Grammy salute, next in 2014 for the 50th anniversary of 1964 and we'll see next year are they gonna are they gonna do something again have they run out of things to honor in grammy land right (laughs) that's a a topic for another day audiences loved them so much they had 21 number one hits more than any rock group in history but it was a different story on grammy night Yep, the Beatles only won four awards as a group, and they encountered some pretty hard nights in the process. In 64, Hard Day's Night lost as Song of the Year to this. And they didn't get any help the following year. Help lost as Album of the Year to Old Blue Eyes with September of My Years. The warm September. The Beatles were to encounter some additional losses that Grammy night. That year, they also lost Best Vocal Group Grammy to who else? The Anita Kerr Singers. It's not unusual to go out at any time. Later made regulars on the Smothers Brothers show, the Anita Kerr Singers beat out the Beatles with their song, We Dig Mancini, placing these polyester-clad pop performers in the annals of music trivia. It wasn't in the cards for the Beatles' Grammy luck to come alive in 65. Yesterday... There are currently 2,500 recorded versions of Yesterday, placing it in the Guinness Book of World Records. But did it win a record of the year? Nope. Instead, it went to Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass with this. 1966 wasn't much better for the British rock group, who was up for contemporary rock and roll recording with Eleanor Rigby. Eleanor Rigby. It got edged out by the new vaudeville band with this. Winchester Cathedral. In 1968, the Beatles lost again with this number one hit. Hey, Jude, don't be afraid. They weren't alone. Hey, Jude, and this famous Simon and Garfunkel hit. And here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Lost as song of the year to this. God didn't make little green apples. 
The song was performed by O.C. Smith, who's now a minister. While he's proud to be in such illustrious company, he says the win was not unexpected. Little Green Apples was a very strong, beautiful love song, and I was not surprised that, that, that it won. By this time, the Beatles weren't surprised about this 1968 award. <laughs> Magical Mystery Tour lost as Album of the Year to Glenn Campbell. By the time I get to Phoenix. While the Beatles did turn up losers in many Grammy categories, they didn't need to feel too bad. After all, they had the love of their fans for the songs they sang that still live on today. With a love like that, you know you should be glad. We talk about the music industry being an industry for young people. Well, not the Grammy Awards. <laughs> because 50, 50s and 60s artists are still voting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay, so so the last topic we want to talk about today uh, is something that, that I just kind of came across and found really kind of fascinating. Uh, Ray Cooper has played on records with each of the former Beatles. Yes. And, he, you know, he, he kind of just keeps showing up in the Beatles story. Yeah, he's actually one of the few musicians to have worked with all four. He did a lot with George. Uh, he played with Ringo on the Old Wave album. Right. He was with Paul on Press to Play. And then while he was not on a John Lennon record as John Lennon, he was on Elton John's cover of Lucy and the flip, his cover of One Day at a Time, both of which featured John Lennon. I know this is technicality, but uh, Ray Cooper was there when John played with Elton at Madison Square Garden. John was an extraordinary man. There's no question about that. Interesting, wonderfully dangerous. And I mean wonderfully, because he was so... Uh, Irreverent. <laughs> Wonderfully. <laughs> you, exactly. I was searching for the word and you, uh, wonderful stuff. Anyway, but, but we, uh, he, he came on the road with Elton uh, for a year, almost. Um, and, uh, which was a very interesting time and I knew him anyway. Um, so we, we had some wonderful times. And then in that year, we did uh, we, we recorded Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds for El Elton, but he also did Whatever Gets You Through the Night. Uh, which I'm on, and uh, and that was the reason, of course, the, the very famous reason um, Elton said, well, we'll do this session, and, and if it goes to number one, you have to play live with us, and uh, and which is what happened, and that's why Madison Square Garden happened. And uh, I think I, I, I think it may have been, sadly and awfully, his last live performance, actually. You know, we're going to go through some of these to put them all in a bit of historical context. So before Ray Cooper had even joined Elton's band full-time, he was a studio musician. Right. How did uh, you first get to have Sir Elton John, long before he was a Sir, become part of your life? Well, again, it was, it was, uh, we've known each other for a long, long time, and we've, um, for many years. And um, we were both session musicians. And so the very first time he worked with a former Beatle was on Live and Let Die. Which, I you know, I guess I knew, but I never really noticed. And Live and Let Die, the film with with Paul, he was always very sweet with me. 
Well, I just, I guess I assumed that it was all wings. Yeah, exactly. I'm, yeah. I mean, you know, it makes perfect sense. All of the stuff going on after the reggae part as is just kind of building up. That sounds like Ray Cooper. Are you talking? The percussion. Oh, okay. Right. The rest of Wings is busy, each on their own instruments, and then there's a separate drummer, but you have all that other percussion going on in there. Right. And I, you know, I just hadn't thought about it. And apparently, you know, George Martin, when he was producing this, it's like, oh, I've got just the guy. And so Ray Cooper, who had started working with Elton, but was not a full-time member of his band yet, was a studio musician. And George Martin called him and he came in and played on the track. But Ray Cooper had begun playing, or at least performed on sessions for Madman Across the Water. That was back in 1970. So, uh, in what, Live and Let Die was late 72? Recorded October 72, yeah. Released in 73. So, you know, he was... He was a known entity, but he wasn't a full-time member of Elton's band. He was predominantly a studio musician. And even as someone in Elton's band, he was a studio musician. He hadn't joined the band yet. Right. I think it took till, like, late 73, early 74 that he actually would join Elton John's band. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't know ex- exactly what the timeline is, but he was also working with the Rolling Stones around that time as a session player. But at some point, he got asked to actually be in Elton's band, and and they were touring regularly. So. Well, I haven't seen that he and Billy Preston really ran across each other. I I wonder if that happened during that period when when both of them were really kind of working around as session guys in the same crowd, right? Were you close to Billy? Was he a, a close friend? Yeah, yeah. Because we'd work with George. You know, I, I was very lucky and very privileged, as I've been in most of my active creative life. It's all just been luck, and yes, it, you know, it really has. <laughs> um, that I, you know, I, I met George as a as a Beatle, and uh, we became friends. Which was, you know, the, the guitar player and the percussion player. But it it it, it worked. But and um, he was such a joy and. And we had, George had a sort of um, a fraternity of people that he, he used, um, and Billy was one of them, of course, and I was very lucky to be one of them too. I was the percussionist, Jim Keltner was the drummer, and how wonderful he is. And Billy was, um, when available, was the keyboard player, and, and, and um, it just went on. And they were great friends and great times down at the Apple Studios in Savile Row. And then George Fry Park when he'd build his own studio in the in the house. Like I say, in 74, Elton and John Lennon had become friends and, and they went into the studio and you know Elton brought in his band for the two Lennon covers that he did for Lucy and One Day at a Time. As you noted, uh, Ray was there the night of Thanksgiving, although there is actually an interesting, I guess not postscript, but prescript to that story. Elton and Ray Cooper traveled together on a boat, the SS France. And there were two other people on that boat. Right. The Lennons. (laughs) Cynthia Lennon and Julian Lennon. So Elton was to discover that John's ex-wife was on the boat and traveling to New York. And he apparently befriended them. Celebrity hangs together. 
Well, but neither Cynthia nor Julian were celebrities at that point in time. I mean, well, of course they were. They had a little bit of money, but here's a woman and her son. At that point, everybody knew that. Hey Jude was written for Julian, and and he'd do an album by that name fifty years later. No, <laughs> they were celebrities to a degree, you know. But the the thing about that is, Ray Cooper apparently got particularly close to Julian and Cynthia. They got close enough that he said, "Well, if you ever need anything, don't hesitate to call." And they would take him up on that offer a couple years later. Right, but I don't know that it, the relationship was anything more than just a friendship yeah um not- i would guess it's at the very least it was you know she could and would telephone him to talk because well they, they wouldn't just call him out of the blue six or seven years later but you know we'll get to that i don't think they were like best of friends but again ray cooper was starting to hang out in Beatles circles at this time he would be starting to work with george pretty quickly after this right i, I guess that's right Thanksgiving Day, 1974, uh, Ray Cooper was on the stage when John Lennon came out. And so so he was witness to John playing on that show and then the reunion with Yoko Ono that evening. It's kind of a little Forrest Gump in the post-Beatles lives. Ray just keeps popping up. <laughs> right. The next time we really hear about Ray showing up was on the George Harrison album. So, you know, that's... 78 so you know there's there's three or four years much of that spent touring with elton of course correct on that album i think ray was just basically again a a session musician yeah but he and george would become close and i i knew him for many years and uh he was a dear 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 friend i miss him desperately but he um i remember seeing the plans uh, of this wonderful estate that he in the early days before he actually moved here george and elton would become close they tell the stories of uh, George and Elton and Eric Clapton going out to watch cricket matches together. <laughs> Not that Ray Cooper was involved, but that's a funny sight to imagine. Right. <laughs> Following that, he would do several records with George. Uh, when the record company didn't like George's first version of Somewhere in England, George invited Ray Cooper in to both play on and co-produce the four new tracks right you know from his point of view he also kind of initiated a beginning in george's life of introducing him to other musicians rather than the group of musicians that george had been playing with ray cooper had a foot in both the rock world and the classical world which george really had never even touched and so you know some of those musicians came into george's life through ray cooper right there's one thing that I've read about Ray's belief that you really had to interact with other musicians in order for your music to work, that he saw that working with George, that having new people come in, different ideas charged him and uh, refired his interest. People say you can hear it on the George Harrison album. George's writing style changed a little bit, in part due to what you're saying, you know, George kind of going out and making some different connections. Right. It's got some great tracks on it. Then Ray Cooper was in Rockestra, and so he appears on Back to the Egg, both of those tracks. Yeah, kind of funny. A tambourine player would even really be heard <laughs> with Pete Townsend and how many uh, instrumentalists do they have on that stuff? Too many? <laughs> Let's bring in Ray Cooper with his tambourine. On the day Rockestra was, Pete Townsend from The Who... 
Kenny Jones from The Who. Bruce Thomas from the Elvis Costello Band. Hank B. Marvin of The Shadows. Tony Dorsey, Wings World Tour. Ray Cooper, Elton John Band. Thaddeus Richard, Wings World Tour. Dave Gilmore of the Pink Floyd. Lawrence Juber of Wings. Morris Pert. John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin. Steve Holly of Wings. Denny Lane of Wings. John Bonham of Led Zeppelin. Gary Brooker of Procol Harum. Tony Carr. Speedy K. Tony Ashton of Ashton Gardner and Dyke. Howie Casey from Wings World Tour. Ronnie Lane, ex Small Faces. Steve Howard, Wings World Tour. And we'll just turn that fader all the way up to 11. <laughs> Ray Cooper will find a way to make himself heard. Perhaps by producing the album and turning himself up. <laughs> that was right around the time that he and Elton went to Russia, right? The, which was really the first big Western act to make a splash in Russia. Right. Making some rock history of his own there. <laughs> mentioned that julian had met ray cooper during that boat ride over after john's passing julian was having a bit of a hard time apparently and he dropped out of school and he was kind of aimless and didn't know where he was going to go or what he was going to do and it was more than just julian's situation because you know cynthia was pretty devastated by john's murder and her marriage i think it was their third marriage at that point broke up but uh, I married an Italian in 1970, 1970 actually, and which was a bit disastrous because it was a rebound marriage and 
Not very successful. And you married again? Yes. And that wasn't successful? No. But that leaves you with the figures of, um, of, of three marriages, three divorces now? Yes, yes. After many turbulent years, and having moved 20 times in 20 years, Cynthia is now settled in a new home in the Lake District. So Julian was having some problems, but it had to do with his world around him. And so Cynthia phoned up the Coopers and said, Ray, can you help us out? And he did. He took in Julian and Julian lived with them for six months, at least according to Ray Cooper and according to Julian as well. He's mentioned this a couple of times. They really helped him straighten out his life somewhat and moved him in the direction of music. I mean, that may be an answer to your question earlier. Yeah, perhaps so. How or why did Julian go into music? He was playing with it and living there with Ray Cooper. Ray Cooper may have said, is this what you want to do? And if it's what you want to do, I can help you get into it. And well, he did. And was Ray Cooper living in the England or the United States? England at the time. Ah. And we should also mention that uh, Ray Cooper is there with Paul and George and Ringo on all those years ago. He's actually playing on, on that record. Right. So the next year, he would appear on what would become George's final record for a little while, Gone Trapo. Right. And that is, as you note, more or less just as a session job. Of course, Gone Trapo has the... Uh song from Time Bandits. Um, Dream Away. That would come into play pretty quickly here. Right, because Ray would be involved with handmade films. To a great extent. But before that would happen, Ray shows up on Old Wave. A bit more than a session player, but he wasn't involved heavily in the record. But he's playing the vocoder and doing some backing vocals on I Keep Forgetting, which, if you remember... I guess a couple months ago, we did a show about Ringo's old rock and roll 50s covers, and and we both just raved about that track. Right. Uh, And then the other song on Old Wave that he appears on is uh, Everybody's in a Hurry But Me, which was really just kind of an extended jam. The presence of Ray Cooper did not help the album sell (laughs) any. Yeah, following that, Python had their Life of Brian issues, and they came to George... And, you know, George agreed to pay for it. And we really have the origins of handmade films. Right. Now, what a lot of people don't know is that there were really four people who were heavily involved in handmade films all the way through. There's Dennis O'Brien, who, well, he's a crook. We'll get to that. There was Derek Taylor. There was George Harrison. And there was Ray Cooper. Whose personalities seem to be the lubricant for uh, several individuals at Handmade. Kind of the Ringo of Handmade films. There you go, exactly. I used to be in the theater. I wasn't particularly good at it, but I, I love the, the-, the theater. And, and, um, and he said, well, you know all these theater people. I think I've got a film company. Why don't you be me in the office? Which is very sweet of him. So Handmade Films have been founded. And so we, I, I came into the tail end of Life of Brian, and started and developed into the head of production and development. And I was there for 11 years. We made 23 feature films. Um, and we had some fun and we had some pain. But uh, the fun part was meeting Monty Python 
and making dear friends with all of them, especially Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin, who are dear, dear friends. And the whole avenue that has come because of the Terry Gilliam. And because of, yeah, and uh, working on all of Terry's films subsequent to that, which has, has been great fun, and all because of George. All the doors have always owned. First, because of music, because music's always been the key to the door, and uh, it's led me through wonderful pathways. And George has, was one of those people that if he knew you had a passion, and, he, and if uh, it was a good passion, he, he, somehow your dream would come true. That's how, his, uh, how he was as a friend in terms of trying to help your dreams come true? Yes, he would make sure they came true. Despite the fact that we like to talk about George's role in Handmaiden, and George was very important in Handmaid. He was the one who ultimately decided whether a film got paid for, whether they made a film or not, but he really wasn't sitting there reading scripts. He didn't come into the office every day. No. His money fueled the company, but he wasn't running the company. He, you know, he trusted other people. Dennis O'Brien, for instance. What is surprising is that Ray Cooper was one of those guys. He read every single script that came into Handmade. He's the one who kind of said, yeah, this is the kind of thing that we do. Yeah. There's a documentary called An Accidental Studio, which is worth looking out for. And there's also a book that it was very loosely based on called Very Naughty Boys. <laughs> the book is, is definitely one worth looking for if you really want to go into depth on what was handmade and how did they do business. Right. <laughs> so here, here's a couple of quotes from, from that early era of handmade uh, from Ray Cooper. He did a couple of interviews in music magazines where he's talking about the film business, but oh well. Handmade did have a philosophy. Fairly broadly, it was the best we could endeavor to do of every part of drama and comedy. You know, George was primarily a comedy guy. If you came to him with a drama, he said, well, you know, you decide if, if that's good or not. He, he only really wanted to know about the comedies. Right. Comedy was the leading player. It started with comedy with Python and moved into drama because I, I being Ray Cooper, love drama. I love dealing much more with the Mona Lisas, but it never mattered as long as it was the best quality work. Its morals were in the right place and it had a high quality of entertainment about it. That was our broad philosophy. The aim was also to strike a balance between art and commercialism. Yes, to take risks with unfamiliar and controversial material, to make films that would stimulate as well as entertain, but at the same time to make sure they made enough money for our company to stay in production. It was also being seen by the industry to be brave in what it chose to make. It was a signal, like beacons being sent out or jungle drums saying that's a good home. <laughs> it's a neat little story, and Handmade was shoved into the same offices as the Dark Horse offices. Yeah, it wasn't a, a big building. <laughs> I mean, just offices. It was like four suites of offices, and then there was a penthouse on top where, well, Dennis O'Brien would live. The thing about this suite of offices is apparently the elevator was big enough to hold one and a half adults or four children. <laughs> so they didn't like to take meetings in the office. <laughs> right. It would take you a while to get people up there. <laughs> exactly. This would go on for several years. Ray Cooper would be, he would have his finger on every piece of this business. And it was actually sort of a day-to-day -day job for him when he wasn't out on the road. 
Right. <laughs> it's a steady paycheck. And he wasn't even really out on the road all that much. Elton was going through his own rehab issues and other things and working apart from his band for a lot of this time. We're talking the early 80s. Yeah, exactly. So so Ray's, well, I got to do something, I, and I can do this. And he was, well, quite happy to do that. He he loved film. He, he maybe even loved film more than George did. Well, that would be a good gig. <laughs> and so... When the Pythons were to learn of Dennis's tendencies, they didn't tell George, they told Ray Cooper. So Ray Cooper sort of held on to the question of where Dennis uh, was going off with Handmaid's money. And the Pythons being involved, how? Dennis O'Brien was one of the people who was in charge of the Pythons, and they left about the same time that they left Handmaid. Dennis wanted to basically use the Pythons and control the Pythons and provide for the Pythons. I do remember him entertaining us all one summer and he was going to do his pitch for managing the Pythons, really, and taking over the Pythons. We had a very nice time then. He was very generous. We had his pool and all that. And then we sat down and there was a great board and Dennis drew lots of sort of arrows and names on the board, which are sort of mainly consisting of, of small islands um, in the Caribbean region that no one ever heard of. And this is where Python was going to be based. Who, who, who's going to be, who do we talk to there? Oh, don't, don't worry about that, don't worry about that. And it looked as though by imposing a sort of structure which meant that Python had to make this many films over the years, he couldn't see really that the creative side of Python was a very messy business. It wasn't something where you just sat down and, and wrote a film like that. It took a long time for ideas to come through, a long time for them to be debated. And the one thing we didn't want to cede in any shape or form was control, creative control of our work. When we did discuss all this together, and do we want Dennis to be our, our manager, we decided no, we didn't want Dennis to be our manager. So that was the kind of crunch point where handmade films really ceased to be a Python company. They were no longer willing to put their own money in Dennis's hands. Right. So they only made Life of Brian. With Handmaid, exactly. Right. And I mean, you know, they did some solo projects through Handmaid, but that was largely directly through George. Eric and George were friends. George, Eric would be, oh, I have this idea. Nun's on the run. <laughs> and George said, oh, that's good. I like that. Right. And then you know, they'd bring in Ray Cooper, and then Ray would then go back to the office and say, we're making this. Did you like that film? It has its funny bits. I'd agree with that. It's not a great film. Yeah. What they did during that period that was great is the, the various uh, secret policemen's other ball. You know, there are, what, two or three of those. Yes. And those were out through Handmade, and those are all just... Those are great. Really, really funny. Yeah. So Ray Cooper would be the one who eventually had to break the news to George that Dennis O'Brien was a thief. Much to his shock and dismay. Yeah, I, well, I mean, George trusted him. Right. You know, we, we talk about how much of a crook that Alan Klein was. Dennis O'Brien was just a big crook. Do you know how that was settled? George ended up winning what he could he would have ended up getting more, but one of the 
final settlements, he was too sick to come and they would not give him lease to reschedule. Ah. You know, one of their final settlement meetings was when he was just terribly sick still. So Dennis and co still owe the Harrison estate a considerable amount of money. They paid back what they could. Well, well, hold your breath for that. In the things work out the way they should, had that not been the case and had George not needed the money, there's at least a pretty good chance we never would have gotten an anthology. You know, part of the deal with anthology was he needed he needed cash to make up for what Dennis O'Brien was doing. Right. What Ray Cooper was telling him about that Dennis was using handmade money to do real estate deals which were completely unrelated to handmade. So George was just looking to refill his coffers? Yeah, exactly. And once they were refilled, he said, nope, I'm not going to do that third song. <laughs> Something like that. But before we completely leave Handmade here, there's the film Water. It's a, a whole British Empire farce, and it's based on what, if it's not oil that comes off of this island, but it's a natural source of spring water. Right. At the end of the film... George and Ringo and Eric Clapton and another number of others, including uh, Ray Cooper, <laughs> uh, play behind Billy Connolly as the the lead singer. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in this faux charity concert, the the concerts for the people of Cascara, right? Cascara being the the island. And, and speaking of faux, I think they they play faux reggae basically. If independence depends on this song, we might as well give the island back to the bats. It gets better. How do you know? Because I have some friends in the music business and I made a few calls. Today. That's uh, Ringo. Who's this? And George, what's this? It's, a, it's who's this and what's this, together again. Isn't that Eric Clapton? My God, it's the concert for Cascara. It was quite extraordinary, Eric Clapton and George and Ringo Starr and everybody. I was frightened to turn around. Every, every time I looked around, one of my heroes was looking back at me. <laughs> in my backing band, it was like a dream. It's an extraordinary experience. We've come here to ask you most humbly Please won't you grant us our liberty We want our freedom Give us our freedom We want our freedom Give us our freedom a real Wally. A song called Freedom, which is, well, much better than Paul McCartney's <laughs> song called Freedom. <laughs> Set it up by saying Freedom, not by Paul McCartney. <laughs> Very funny. And, and there, there's Ray Cooper doing his thing right behind them. Right. That might be considered part of George's decision to get back into the music industry for real. <laughs> Water, huh? I'll say that. You don't have to say that. <laughs> I just, I'm just making a note here. Water. 
the final films, and in fact, one of the only American, truly American-based films, because Shanghai Surprise was American in nature, but not an American production, Right, features George as a janitor in an airport. And he's not credited. He's just there. Well, it's kind of like his cameo in Life of Brian. The lead characters run through during the climax of the film, and there's a janitor, and blink and you miss it. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, that's George. <laughs> right. That was kind of his farewell to handmade films in a way. So after that, uh, Ray Cooper showed up with uh, Paul McCartney at the uh, 1986 Prince's Trust concert. You know, that's the one with Tina Turner where they where they sing Get Back. The Prince's Trust is a big deal in England, but uh, perhaps less so here. Yeah. Uh, and then the following year, George and Ringo did, did the same show, did the Prince's Trust show. And there was Ray Cooper once again. Then Ray would show up uh, in Cloud Nine. In Cloud Nine or on Cloud Nine? Uh, on the album Cloud Nine. <laughs> yeah. He shows up in the When We Was Fab video. Right, right. <laughs> and, and I like all of his parts. The songs wouldn't have been the same without the strong, slightly bombastic percussion. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like what we were saying about Live and Let Die. It's, and it's kind of like what we say about Ringo. He has a very specific style, and you can tell when he's the one who's there playing. Right. A decade later, so we're talking about 1997, uh, he was there for music from Montserrat. He'll be around for a while. I guess it was kind of a charity thing. It was a charity more for the island than it was for George Martin. Yeah. It was McCartney-led, and, well, there was Ray Cooper. <laughs> he makes a big appearance in Concert for George in 2002. Well, the Concert for George, which was extremely sad, um, something none of us involved really wanted to do in the sense of we wanted George there. Um, but having said that, it was it was an extraordinary event, and from Monty Python, who were active at the at the concert, Eric Clapton, everybody, all these wonderful players, Ringo, Paul, uh, and a host of other friends and family, there was a feeling um, which everybody shared of the most intense love on the stage. You know, we've all been on stages. All of us had been many many uh, performances. But everybody came off of that particular stage saying that they'd never felt anything like that before, ever. And it was a concert that we, in many ways we didn't want to finish because it was such a, he was such a comfort being, his soul and spirit was there. And um, it, were, it was a genuine rejoicing of his life and work, but it was still very painful to do. And uh, then I had the privilege, but also the painful task of being with it for another year because I was one of the producers along with Mrs. Harrison and a wonderful gentleman called John Kamen and uh, so I had to sit in the cutting rooms for another year watching this material which was beautiful but also very painful uh, and it was it was difficult to to watch and, and, and sometimes it's still difficult to talk about it because it was a very 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 moving event There's just a whole lot of things where Ray Cooper shows up if you're looking for a tambourine player. <laughs> yeah, but he's not just a tambourine player. No, no. But but that's really, when you're looking for him in most of these shows, that's what he's playing. Yes. He, he may do more in the studio, but he's playing the tambourine and most of the stuff. 
So you know, it's not the it's not the most exciting of topics, but it's, it's a topic that other people haven't covered, and it's something I found interesting. He shows up everywhere, you know. Um, what I took away from reading a lot of the stories about him is that, as I said and you said, you know, he's kind of the Ringo star of all this, and that he seems to strike a good balance with everybody and is a decent guy, and people like him. All right. So next week we'll be talking about Linda and the concert for Linda from 1999. And then we'll be back with something else the week after that. Something else. (laughs) Talk to you all soon. See you next week. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beast or Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. That was George was an avid gardener. He loved garden. This is why he loved Hawaii so much. He loved the the people. He loved the ukulele. He loved the the music of Hawaii. Um, But his joy was the fact that you could, as he said, you could put a lolly stick in the ground and it would flower. Um, He just found it such a wonderful, fertile place to to work in the in the soil, and uh, he developed a beautiful, stunning. garden and an estate full of wonderful flowers and and it was it was always his joy and I, I knew him for many years and uh, he was a dear 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 friend I miss him desperately but he um, I remember seeing the plans uh, of this wonderful estate that he in the early days before he actually moved here oh, so when it was being built he sort of had the drawing when it was being built yeah and um, and it was such a wonderful uh, present from him to me to be able to come and see the the estate which was is is stunning and it's a tribute to him as in fact all of his properties have this wonderful signature of his gardening abilities they got to take on his his gardening persona if you will so and and a trip like that was really nothing but friendship taking place that was you were that close to him just i mean you spend two weeks here doing nothing but gardening Absolutely, absolutely. Well, he spent many weeks, many places, but this was always his favorite place. This was the place that uh, any chance he had to get back to, he would come to Maui. And uh, he was always talking about Maui. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.